0: me in uh, Luke chapter 12 this morning, Luke chapter 12. We're continuing on with our our study through the the third gospel, and we're in the midst of Luke 12, which is a passage that's full of warnings about these dangers that uh, exist, that lurk against our souls. If you follow along as I begin reading in Luke 12, verse 13. And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. Luke 12, verse 14. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought, or said, or dialogued within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will bestow my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore, I say unto you, take no thought. Don't be anxious for your life. What ye shall eat, neither for the body what ye shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are ye better, more valuable then the fowls, and which of you by taking thought, by being anxious, can add to his stature one cubit? And if he then be not able to do that which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow, they toil not, they spin not. And yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothed the grass, which is today in the field, and tomorrow is cast into the oven... How much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And seek not ye what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink. Neither be ye of doubtful mind, for all these things do the nations of the world seek after. And your father knoweth that ye have need of these things. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have. And give alms, provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approaches, neither moth corrupteth, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We are a society that is completely fixated on money. Our headlines are filled with news about the stock market, dire warnings about inflation. Uh, By the way, your probably checkbook has noticed the realities of inflation, prophecies of a looming recession. We hear about food prices skyrocketing and gas prices going up and down and all over the place. Millions of people in our world, in our country, devote their lives to simply climbing the corporate ladder, just grasping after the next run looking for the next promotion that's pretty much their lives we're always looking for the next pay raise we're always scoping out the next purchase considering the next car that we're going to get saving for the next house plotting for the next renovation and as a result of this fixation that we have on money and stuff by the way we are the most prosperous society that has ever existed in human history United States of America in the 21st century, you could not live in a safer, more prosperous society. We've got our problems, I get that. But we have more prosperity, more money, more wealth than ever before, and yet we are a frantic, we are an anxious, we are an unhappy people. We're driven by devotion to the dollar. Our happiness and our security all too often rides on the roller coaster of our bank balance in the stock market. Our joy has been so entwined with the success of our jobs and the amount of money in the bank that our joy is built on shifting sands. We we weave ropes out of sand. That's precisely the point Jesus is making. Did you notice verse 22? He had a therefore. He's, He's warning against greed in verses 13 to 21. And then he says, therefore, don't be anxious that greed and anxiety are linked together. By materialism. In verse 15 he says, Take, take heed to beware of covetousness. For a, life, a man's life consists, consists not in the abundance of the things he possesses. He says there is more to life than stuff. And then he makes the same point in verse 23. For life is more than meat and the body is more than raiment. Materialism is that worldview that reduces life to material stuff. That says the meaning and the value of life is about money. It is about possessions. It is about what you Half. That's materialism. And you don't have to be sort of a philosophical materialist like a, a Marxist or something to have a materialistic outlook. If you find your joy and your happiness and your well-being and your security is dependent on stuff or position or prestige, you might well be giving into a materialistic worldview. So that's what Jesus is addressing in these two big chunks of scripture. Now what we're going to do is we're going to split this into two this week we'll deal with the, the greed side of the equation. And then after Easter, we'll pick back up with the, verse 22, dealing with anxiety. But I want you to understand from the outset, greed and anxiety grow out of the same soil of materialism. Right? If you have anxiety in your life, it is because you have a materialistic outlook. Right? And so that, that materialism may not look like greed. It might look like anxiety, about I don't know if I'm going to have enough stuff. That's also materialism. Both are an expression of of materialism now speaking of greed greed is something that just seems so normal in our lives if we were to sort of do a poll this morning of you know what are the most serious sins that are afflicting our culture today what are the things that really need to be addressed we might get to greed eventually but we might think about the violence that just seems to be escalating the spike in 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 in, in crime and homicides that just shot up in the last couple of years We might be thinking about the the big push of transgenderism, which is indeed a very serious and sobering thing that we need to think carefully about as Christians. We might think about the rampant immorality. We might think about the Holocaust of abortion. And these are very, very serious sins about which the Bible speaks. By no means am am I downplaying them. The Bible speaks clearly to those. But isn't it easier to think about the sins that exist in the world around us than to think about the sins that lurk in our hearts within us? Isn't it easier to think about what, man, what's going on out in San Francisco or Washington, D.C., than what is going on in, in, in my heart right here? And greed is one of those things that just seems so normal. A study was done a few years ago thinking about greed, asking people, is greed necessary for success? 46% of people thankfully said, no, it's not necessary for success. Success is more than greed. But 50% of people said, yeah, greed is necessary for success. If you're going to be successful, there needs to be some greed. Just don't be too upfront about it. Because that same study showed that most people regard. 78% of people say that greed is morally wrong. So that means there's a bunch of people who say it's wrong, but if you want to be successful, you got to kind of nurture the greed, just kind of keep it under the table. Greed seems normal to our lives. It seems so endemic to our society. It seems so necessary even to our capitalistic economy that, man, you've got to be greedy and the profit motive and all these things. If it seems so normal to the human condition, why does Jesus make such a big deal about it in a chapter that is full of dire warnings about the eternal destiny of souls? What is so dangerous about Greed like I said, this is not one of those sins that we're all like, man, this is a sin that is deadly, eternally serious. Yeah, it's a problem. But why does Jesus take it so seriously? Well, what I want to do is walk through this passage, and I want us to see four reasons why greed is so dangerous. Why is greed dangerous? Why is covetousness? That's the, the way the word's translated in verse 15. Why is it so dangerous? Well, number one, Greed divides. Greed divides. Verse 13, one of the the crowd says to him, Teacher, speak to my brother and tell him to divide the inheritance with me. Now, just a little bit of context. Back in verse 1, we we find out that there was a a multitude gathered together. It was an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that people are, are walking on top of each other. We have this enormous crowd of people pressing in on Jesus. And Jesus has just had this confrontation with the scribes and Pharisees, and now he is warning primarily the disciples And so we've kind of got this this different dynamic going on with the audience. There's the disciples that Jesus is speaking primarily to. But then there's the crowds who are obviously overhearing everything he says. And then there's this single individual who kind of interrupts Jesus. Now, last week, he began these warnings against these seven deadly dangers. He warned against hypocrisy and against fear and against shame, primarily speaking to the disciples. And then this dude just kind of, like, speaks up in the middle of, you know, here's Jesus just speaking. And someone, it's like one of you all jumping up, and be like... Hey, Pastor, could you uh, mediate between me and my brother? We're having a dispute about the inheritance? It almost seems kind of like, hey, why don 't you wait until after the service when we 're shaking hands? And this guy just jumps out and he 's very uh, you know, very aggressive about it and asking Jesus to help mediate a dispute between him and his brother. Now, there's not any hint that the man is concerned about the relationship. We know Psalm 133 says how good and beautiful it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. That's not his motivation. His motivation is after the money. According to Jewish law, and you can read about this in Deuteronomy, the normal way things work is you know, when dad dies, the inheritance gets divided among the kids. The oldest sibling, the firstborn, gets a double portion above the rest just because he's carrying on the family name. What might have happened here is maybe the older sibling just took everything and left the younger sibling out in the cold. There's, there's the very real possibility that there's injustice going on here. Or maybe the younger sibling's like, hey, I know that's the way things are, that, the, that tradition and the law is saying that the older sibling gets a double portion, but Jesus, choosing to be kind of a radical who's overturning tradition, so maybe you could work out a more egalitarian way where we all get the same thing and the wealth gets spread around. I, I don't know what his motivation is. But basically, he wants Jesus to step in. By the way, that was a common function for rabbis. He calls Jesus master, he calls him teacher, he calls him rabbi. Jesus, the, the man does not say, Jesus, we're having a hard time figuring this out. Could you step in so the relationship is preserved? No, he's not concerned about preserving the relationship, but getting the money. Jesus' response tells us that the man is driven by greed. Now, I want you to notice this. Greed has divided a man and his brother I mean, generally our siblings, right? Think about your siblings, your brothers and sisters. Like, hey, we don't always get along with each other. But you always have each other's back. That's kind of how that works with siblings. It takes something pretty major to, to divide siblings and make them not speak to each other. But You know what one of those things is? Money. Money. Greed will divide siblings that would normally love each other, would normally get along with each other, would normally work through things. Greed has driven this man and his brother apart. How many marriages? Maybe you think of situations. Maybe you think in your, your own life. How many marriages have been mangled by material, materialism? Disputes over money. I want money. I want more money. We're going to divide it. And a prenuptial agreement. Disquabbles over money. How many siblings have been split apart by inheritance disputes? How many dads have become workaholics and have, in effect, become absentee fathers because they are driven by greed? We see more money. and It all comes under the guise of, I want to, quote, unquote, provide for my family when you're not providing the most basic thing, which is a relationship. It's greed that drives it. How many, how many churches have been split over fights about finances? The list can go on. And on. How many workplaces have been riven by division when you find out someone else got a promotion and leapfrogged and they're getting more money than I am and I've been here longer and jealousies and greed enters in. Greed divides. It divides our relationships horizontally. But verse 14 is going to remind us it's also a vertical dimension. Jesus says, man, who made me a judge and a divider over you? Jesus says, I'm not jumping in here to this little inter-sibling rivalry. Jesus' response is quite pointed. It says, man, who made me a judge and a divider? Basically, reminding the man, you are simply a man. You are a mortal who should be living your life in submission to God. And by the way, do you remember the 10th commandment? Thou shalt not covet. He is living in violation of the 10th commandment. This is not just a matter of we're having a hard time getting along, but the relationship with God, the vertical dimension, has been divided by greed. In effect, Jesus is saying this. This is not the reason I came. I did not come in order to satisfy your greed and help you get what you want. Why did Jesus come? Well, just over a few pages, in another account where we're dealing with a rich man, Luke chapter 19, we get the story of Zacchaeus, and we know Zacchaeus was a wee little man, but Zacchaeus was also a rich man. He was rich because of his greed and because of his injustice and his oppression, and Jesus goes after Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is, you know, is just stunned by Jesus' grace, and he says, I'm going to give away half of my goods to the poor. I'm going to restore what I've stolen. And Jesus says in verse 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus came to this world not to increase people's wealth, not to satisfy their, their, their greed. He came to save their souls. And this man is basically coming to Jesus saying, Jesus, will you be my pawn on my chessboard?" Will you be my means to my end? Will you be my genie in my bottle? Leon Morris put it well. He said, Jesus came to bring people to God, not to bring property to people. Now, there's a whole theology out there today that basically says Jesus came to bring property to you, to make you wealthy and healthy and to give you success and to make your life really good. Listen, that theology might, you know, might sound really good and sound plausible in prosperous America in the 21st century, that kind of theology will not stand in a concentration camp. That kind of theology will not last when persecution comes along. It will be proven to be demonstrably false when difficulty, when sickness comes along. Jesus did not come to indulge our greed. Now, in one sense, Jesus is the judge, Who made me a judge and a divider over you? Jesus, in effect, is saying your concern should be much larger than just dividing the inheritance. You are one day going to stand before the judge of the universe. Your, Your life is going to be examined and scrutinized by him and held to the standard of his law. Jesus is indeed the judge, the judge of the universe, and he is far more concerned about how greed corrodes the soul than he is about how an inheritance is being divided justly or unjustly. So behind the man's request, Jesus hears a greedy heart. He detects a covetous soul. And he knows this problem is not one that is just limited to this guy. So notice verse 15. And he said unto them. So now he turns around and he addresses the entire crowd. Remember, there's thousands of people. And Jesus is like, this is a message that just this guy doesn't need to hear. This is not just a problem that one person has. Greed is endemic to every human heart. So Jesus is going to now warn the entire crowd against the dangers of greed. So the first danger of greed is greed divides. It divides horizontally. Maybe you've seen that in your life. Maybe you're experiencing that right now. Greed is what needs to be dealt with. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. But it also divides vertically. It ruptures the relationship with our Creator. But here's a second reason why greed is dangerous. Greed deceives. Verse 15, greed deceives. Take heed and beware of covetousness. Now, Jesus would not have to say, "Watch out, be on guard," if greed were something that were glaringly obvious, right? You only have to say, "Watch out and be careful," if there's a danger that could sneak up on you. Things that are very obvious in front of us, you don't need to be like, "Oh, be careful, watch out." Well, it's like, okay, I see, you know, that that's right there in front of me. Greed is an insidious sin that we must guard against. It is deceptive. And the the way this is worded, it is a a present imperative, which means always be on your guard, always be watching out, always be paying attention. This is not a one time I checked the box, I was greedy one time, and not anymore. But this is a a sin against which we must always be alert. So now, what is greed? We've been talking already for quite a while. We haven't actually defined greed. I think we sort of know what it is. But let me go ahead and define it. Uh, The the word underlying it is actually kind of a, a really, like, the word sounds like what it is this? pleonexia. Like, it really sounds like a bad thing, pleonexia. It is the state of desiring to have more than one's due. All right, there are certain things that food and raiment, let us therewith be content. Greed is saying, I want, I want more. It is insatiableness, it is avarice, it is covetousness. We could just simply define it it's the thirst for more. It's always wanting more. I want more money, a bigger house, another vehicle, a newer this, greater prestige, greater prominence, more security. At the bottom of it, greed is about desire. So the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. The 10 commandments don't simply deal with behavior. They deal with motivation and with the heart. Proverbs 21, 26 describes the greedy man. It says, he coveteth greedily all the day long, but the righteous giveth and spareth not. There's the opposite of greed is is generosity. But it's this, this constant desiring. Greed can never satisfy. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. You believe the lie? It starts when you're a kid. If I could just have one more toy, then I'll be happy. Get older. If only I could have a, a car, then I would be happy. If only I could have a house. Well, If only I could have a bigger house. If only I could have a house that has new granite countertops. Like, If only I could have more. A, a, a better job. A better position. a Better paycheck. Trying to quench the soul's thirst with materialism is like trying to satisfy physical thirst with salt water, right? It's going to leave you more and more thirsty than when you went, and it will eventually kill you. It might seem like a good idea if you're out there, you know, floating around on a raft out in the Pacific Ocean. Let me drink, I'm in water, let me go ahead and drink it. But it will kill you. So, too, is the idea of saying, I'm going to satisfy the thirst of my soul with stuff. It was never designed to satisfy I'm saying greed deceives. We've got to be on our guard against it because it is so deceptive. Now, the fact that Jesus says we have to guard against it means that it is a danger we often don't notice. It is deceptive. It is deadly. And we have a tendency to ignore greed in our lives. Uh, It's something else. It's just, I I need that. You know, we confuse needs and wants. You see it in the store where a kid says, I need that toy as they're throwing a temper tantrum on aisle 10 of Walmart. I need that. It's a Uh, confusing needs and wants. That's one way that it deceives. It's a sin that we downplay. Yeah, there's greed in my heart, but nowhere near as bad as what other people are doing. Or we just plain old forget about it. We're so used to it. It It's so much the air that we breathe. We don't think about it. None of us think about the air that we breathe. We don't really think about breathing at all unless we're having a hard time doing it. That's what greed is often like. So watch out and guard against it, verse 15. That's military language. Be on your guard. You're a soldier standing at the door, watching for the enemy. Greed is always on the march. It always seeks to creep into the soul through unguarded gates and undefended walls. It's like a sleeper cell, a terrorist sleeper cell in the soul that is always present, ready to strike. So it requires constant vigilance. Now, if you're sitting here thinking this morning, this is right. Amen, pastor. Greed, man. Such a problem in our society. And you begin to think about, man, there's a bunch of greedy people out there. a the same study I referenced, they asked people, who do they regard as the most greedy? You know, it came to the top of the list. It was lobbyists. They're like, lobbyists are greedy people. 80% of Americans say that politicians are driven by greed. And, and maybe they are, right? But the the, the the thing I want to draw your attention to it's so easy to say it's the politicians it's the lobbyists it's the globalists it's the Wall Street bank they're the greedy ones. If we're beginning to think that way, it could be that greed has taken up residence in our hearts and we don't even realize it. It deceives us by saying it's it's other it's other people. And say, so well, I can't possibly be greedy because I'm not rich. Rich people are greedy. Poor people can't possibly be greedy. No, greed is as much a danger for the poor as it is the rich. The, the way this is worded, back to verse 15, beware of covetousness. The, the wording in, in Greek is beware of every kind of covetousness, which means there's a bunch of different ways that it can express itself. In the rich, it can look like I need another Lamborghini. And among the poor, it can be I want what the rich guy has, so let me elect people to Washington who will take what they have and give it to me. That is also a form of greed. I had the opportunity to go to Papua New Guinea uh, back in twenty. 20- 13, between college and seminary, and here's people living in grass huts, cooking over an open fire, subsistence farming, sort of the ideal state that some people would be like, oh, man, if we could just go back to that simpler life where would, everybody's got the same thing, it's all shared tribal land. If we just got rid of stuff, there would be no more greed and conflict. Uh, as we talk to, to people in churches, you know the number one question they would always ask us about was about money. Like, here's people who didn't have any money and were very much consumed with concerns about money. Like, what are you going to buy? There's like nothing out there. There's a market. You can buy rice. You can buy some ramen noodles. And that's it. That's all that's for sale out here. And they're consumed with money. Well, it was very eye opening. What may express itself as greed, I want more here in the West, will express itself as envy in other cultures. George MacDonald said it very well. That Scottish author, he said, It is not the rich man only who is under the dominion of things. They too are slaves who, having no money, are unhappy for the lack of it. So you're sitting here, I'm not really happy because I don't have enough. Greed has taken up residence in your soul. And you might have lots of money and be like, yeah, but I want a little bit more. Greed has taken up residence in your soul. It is deceptive. That is what makes it so dangerous. If it were a really obvious kind of invasion, Jesus wouldn't have to warn against it. So he goes on in verse 15. Now we're parking here in verse 15 because this is the core principle of what Jesus is going to work out all the way through verse 34. I promise I'm not going to spend this much time on the other verses. The end of verse 34, take heed and beware of covetousness. For, now he's going to give an explanation. He's given a warning and when you see the word for, now we're getting an explanation. We're getting a reason. Why the warning? For a man's life consists consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Materialism says life is defined by how much you have. Talk about someone's personal worth, right? Their life is measured in how much, how many billions of dollars that they own. Like that's that's their worth in life. No, Jesus says there's so much more. He says greed is foolish because life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. True living, true life, is not about having lots and lots of stuff. Greed arises out of that worldview that makes money, possessions, and status. Mind you, remember greed can be about. Intangible is about, well, people notice me, people look at me, people, people see my importance. This is the worldview, this is the air that we breathe, this is the context in which we live, and if we're not careful, we'll give in to it. Greed is deceptive in that it misdefines reality. This is a fundamental misdefinition of what is reality, what is life all about. It's about getting stuff. So dangerous. It ignores the transcendent and it fixates on the imminent. It is oblivious to the eternal and consumed with the tempor- temporal. And that is not reality. That's not reality. Listen, greed is very deceptive. It's all these different ways that it can show up. We can convince ourselves as other people it's not us. But Jesus says to the whole crowd, which by the way, we primarily peasant farmers. Hey, peasant farmers, watch out. Watch out for greed. Let's move on to a third reason. Why is greed dangerous? Why why, why is it a poison we've got to watch out for? Well, number three, it distorts. So it divides vertically, horizontally. It deceives, but it distorts. Jesus now tells a parable. This is what Jesus loves to do is answer a question or an assumed question by giving a parable. And a parable is a a story that usually has a, a, a single point of comparison. Sometimes there's multiple points. But usually there's a main point that he's saying, here it is. Here's the moral of the story. These usually are not true stories, but they're illustrations taken from common life. So he tells them a parable, a comparison, saying, the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. Okay, nothing wrong with that. Uh, nothing wrong with being successful. Nothing wrong with having wealth. Uh, you could read Luke in such a way where Luke is always going after the rich. It's not that he's saying rich, being rich is wrong. But he is saying that trusting in riches and finding your worth in riches and forgetting God because of your riches, that's a problem. Remember who Luke is writing to all the way back in chapter 1. He's writing to whom? Most excellent Theophilus. Most excellent. He's probably some kind of a Roman official. He's probably a rich guy. I I, I tend to think that Theophilus was not yet a Christian, so Luke is writing this treatise in volume 1, book of Luke, volume 2, book of Acts, to to, to demonstrate him. Here's what Christianity is all about. And it's interesting that Luke will include stories that neither Matthew, Mark, nor John include that have to do with riches. This story we're dealing with, by the way, is only found in Luke's gospel, which means it pertains uniquely to Luke's purpose. All right, That's a good way to understand what's going on here. Why does Luke come back to deal with riches? He's going to tell a famous parable in Luke 16 about the rich man and Lazarus, only in Luke's gospel. Luke 19, we get the story of of Lazarus of Zacchaeus. That's only found in Luke's gospel. Why this emphasis on the rich? Because Luke is the evangelist to the rich. Luke is not some kind of Marxist out in the street saying, get rid of the rich and take their stuff. And get... No, he's saying, those of you who are rich, you have a unique danger, a unique distortion to reality, and I'm calling you to repentance. So he says there's a rich man who brought, whose ground brought forth plentifully, maybe, maybe Theophilus, and others like him, and the elite of Greco-Roman society could identify with that, like, yeah, he's got land. Now, notice he's rich when the story starts. There's no implication whatsoever that he became rich by doing anything bad, right? It's because someone's rich doesn't mean that they're evil. Um, he probably inherited the land. He was probably very smart about how he tilled the land. We see a very shrewd businessman in the story. And the land bringing forth plentif- plentifully... Listen, he has very little control over that. That involves things like rainfall, and there's not some kind of blight that comes in and kills the crops. All of that is owing to God's blessing and God's providence. The the rain falls on the just, on the unjust. The sun rises on the just and on the unjust. So in what way is there distortion? Well, verse 17, he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do? You know something God skipped over? He never thanked God. See, how does greed distort? Greed distorts by making it so easy for us to forget God. When things are going really well in our lives, when we got all the money we need and they're getting three square meals and all of that, we're not as inclined to recognize our desperate need of God. But when there's, you know, some kind of crisis coming on, you lose your job, you're like not sure how you're going to pay your bills, and you're like, man, I really need God. There's a, here's the danger with wealth and prosperity is it can blind us to our need of God. Greed is going to distort in a couple of ways. The first one is that it forgets God, and here we see it in, in gratitude. Greed can cause us to, as it were, look through the wrong end of the telescope. You ever done that, where things, that, they look all weird and small. You take the binoculars the wrong way. It's, it's strange. Things that normally would be big look small. And that's what greed does. It makes God very small and insignificant, and it makes me very important. That's how greed works. So this wealthy landowner, nothing wrong with him being wealthy, but he should have recognized this was God's blessing. We read Psalm 104 earlier. Who is it who makes the grass grow? It's God. Who is it who feeds the animals? It's God. Who is it who makes the rainfall? It's God. Literally all of our lives, everything we have comes from God. It is God who gives us the power to gain wealth. But the greedy man forgets that. He becomes so fixated on gaining that God is pushed to the periphery. There's no acknowledgment of God's blessing. Do you realize ingratitude is a very serious sin? Romans 1 talks about how societies forget God. When they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. They became foolish in their own imaginations, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. How do nations forget God? Well, the first step down is ingratitude. Ingratitude is, a, is an act of forgetfulness. It forgets that everything we have is from God. We begin to see it's just from me, it's from my cleverness. And greed begins to grow where gratitude is not occurring. Now, verses 17, 18, and 19, you know, notice his little speech. And he thought, the word here is dialogued. He began a dialogue within himself. By the way, in Luke's gospel, whenever people are having a conversation with themselves, it is always Negative. This internalizing, this sort of psychologizing, is not a good thing. This turning inward and thinking just about me and my feelings—that that our society, our therapeutic societies, all about my hurt, my feelings—that that, that is a turning away from God to myself. So this guy begins to dialogue within himself, saying, "What shall?" Now notice the the the, the first person. Singular pronouns. What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, this is what I, this will I do. I will pull down my barns. I will build greater. There will I bestow all my fruits and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. This is virtual atheism. There's no reference to God. There's no thank you, God, for giving me what, what I have. But this is very much just focused on himself. He's the perfect illustration of what we see in James 4. Go to now ye who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such city and there abide and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas you know not what is on the morrow, for what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Whereas ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall do this or that. Here's someone who is living life without any reference to God, making plans presuming on the future. You see, at the heart of greed is godlessness. It's godlessness. And there are populating pews this morning, maybe even here in this church, professing Christians who are living a functionally atheistic life. Oh yes, they may say, I believe in God. They may say, oh yes, I confess that Jesus is Lord. But in their day-in and day-out activities, there's no reference to God. Their lives are not in any way different than someone who does not claim to be a Christian such a dangerous place to be. The danger of wealth is that wealth can anesthetize our conscience. It make us no longer feel things that are right or wrong. Back in Deuteronomy 6, just jump back there with me to the the book of Deuteronomy. the, The nation of Israel, they're getting ready to go into the land of Canaan. God's saying, be careful that when you go in there, you don't forget me. And by the way, that's precisely what happened in their history. They forgot God. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 10. This is Moses saying, you're going to go into this land. It's going to be a land full of milk and honey. It's going to be a place of prosperity. It's going to be awesome. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 10. And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things which thou fillest not, and wells digged which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees which thou plantedst not, When thou shalt have eaten and be full, and when you've got wealth, when things are going great, verse 12, then beware lest thou forget the Lord that brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. The danger of wealth is it can make us forget God. Listen, when we are dealing with money, it is like you have a high-voltage wire that has no insulation on it. It's dangerous. Now, there's a way to handle that safely. But it is so dangerous. It's so dangerous. Do you view handling money as, man, I, I'm dealing with radioactive material that could, could get a cancer into my soul? Or is money just, ah, oh, yeah, whatever. Do we see the dangers that wealth could corrupt our hearts? Wealth itself is not bad, but there is a danger to our souls. It can distort reality by pushing God to the side, by causing us to forget God. Can give us a false sense of independence from God. Revelation 3 describes, remember the church at Laodicea? I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. That does not describe the American church today. I don't know what does. I'm rich, I'm increased with goods, we got lots of stuff, we got beautiful buildings, we've got nice bank accounts, we have need of nothing. And among that nothing, we begin to think we don't need God. Careful. When God becomes a nice add-on to your life and not a necessity, greed very well may have taken over. We may be trusting in wealth rather than trusting in God. Now back to our, our text, Luke 12. We're saying that greed distorts. It distorts by pushing God to the side, by forgetting God, but it also distorts by focusing on self. Like I said, looking through the wrong end of the telescope, rather than God being big and me being small, I am now big, and God is small, if at all, in the picture. It focuses on self. We said, he's saying, what shall I do? Because I have no room to store my fruits. He's only thinking about himself. Now, it comes out very clearly in verse 19. I will say to my soul, this guy says in his internal dialogue, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, be merry. These are self-absorbed decisions. You notice what didn't enter into this man's calculations? you know, maybe God blessed me so I could be a blessing to others, right? There, there's other people in his town. There's likely poor people in his town who are subsistence farmers who are under the boot of Rome. He's not thinking, man, I, I got all this, extra, all, all this extra food, all this extra surplus. I could go be a help to them. He's not even thinking about them. There's just this isolated focus on self. Tearing down the barns, building bigger barns, storing his stuff, is thinking, okay, this year... The price of grain is really low because everybody presumably had a good harvest. Next year may not be so well, and I can gouge people next year. This guy is thinking, how can I make a penny? How can I squeeze more money out of other people? It's just an inherently self-absorbed decision that he's making. Now, listen, there's nothing wrong with making wise economic decisions. Not suggesting that at all. But there is something profoundly wrong when we are driven by selfish aims. Verse 19, there there, there is an incredible truckload of assumptions here i've got much goods laid up for many years what is he doing he's presuming that he has many years ahead i'm retiring at 65 i've got goods laid up for the next 30 years and you're like really what are you gonna how are you gonna enjoy that he's just he's presuming he has many years and he says take thine ease, eat, drink and be merry that's sort of the standard formulation of a hedonistic life just enjoy your life just enjoy your stuff and by the way, notice where is his security being found? Not in God's promises, but in his possessions. He's put his hope in his hoarded goods. His security is found in his stash of cash. His meaning is found in feasting and in fun. I don't know about you, but I couldn't help but think of the modern idea we have of retirement being described in verse 19. Nothing, you get to the point in life where you can't work anymore. You do need to retire. You need to plan for the future. Again, that's not a bad thing. Planning for the future is a good thing. But here's what the danger is, is that we begin to think, I've worked all my life, now this time is the time for me. That is a very godless way to view retirement. What if we said instead, okay, yes, I'm going to work all these years, I'm going to retire one day because I won't be able to do what I've always done, but now I've got that time to invest in others for the glory of God. What if we had a God-centered vision of retirement rather than a self-centered vision of retirement? What if retirement was less about going down to the villages and getting a nice place and playing golf, and more about saying, now I've got time to invest in those ministries at church that I never had time to invest in before. Now I've got time to invest in my kids and grandkids and pass on a legacy of faith to them in ways that maybe I wasn't able to before. Now I can go and, and, and encourage people in the church who are struggling because I didn't have time before, but now I do. Now I can I can go on missions trips and go and encourage missionaries for weeks on end because and I don't have a job that's tying me down, what if we said, I'm going to use retirement for the glory of God? Now, those of you who are on this side of retirement, because I'm, I'm 30, it's still going to be 35 years, or the way things are going will be like never happened because inflation will take everything away. But you're thinking, about it, you're thinking about retirement, or you're just thinking about, okay, I want lots of money so I can really live the good life. I'm going to live like nobody else so I can live like nobody else. Or are we thinking, okay, I want to think about retirement so I can live for the glory of God? Now as I'm working, and then when I'm retired. What if we, we live life that way? That's not how this guy's thinking. He's thinking only about himself. There are self-absorbed aims. This is a completely distorted worldview, and greed does this. It takes the telescope and it flips it around. Instead of seeing God as, man, he's the center of everything, and I'm, I'm puny. I'm just dust. He says, yeah, God, forget about him, if he's in the picture at all. Now, you don't have to be a rich landowner to think this way. Remember, Jesus is speaking to a bunch of peasants. They can think this way as well. Think about in your life. Think about the last big decisions that you made. Did God factor into them in a meaningful way? Like, what was God's character, God's purposes, God's kingdom, was that an important calculus to you of like, okay, as I make this decision, I want to think about what's going to bring God honor and glory? Rachel and I have been watching show on HGTV called Love It or List It, and people are talking about all these things they want in their new home and how they're going to renovate. It's pretty cool how things get transformed. Last night, there was one couple who was on there on the, on the episode we watched who said, if we buy a new home, it needs to still be close to our church. Like, that's awesome that someone's actually thinking about your church family and where you worship being important. How many young people my age are going to go take a job, and the only thing they're going to consider is, what's the pay? What's the benefits? Are there cool things to do ne- nearby? And not think, okay, is there a gospel preaching church into which I could invest my life? What if instead, those of you who are young, we said this, okay, I can go do this job anywhere. I know I will get paid more in other places than I get paid here. But maybe there's somewhere that there's a church plant going on. Our friend Annie Gleisers out there in Reno. I'm going to go take a job in Reno. And I'm going to get, you know, I'll be able to do what I do anywhere else. But I'm going to invest in that church. I'm going to move strategically with a kingdom mindset and do what I would have done anyway. But find a way to get involved in a church plan. Like, that would be such a cool way to think. Or, okay, I'm an, I can do business internationally. I'm going to go do this business in, I don't know, Brazil, this developing country, and I'm going to go partner with a missionary while well, I'm doing my job, but I'm going to do it to the glory of God. You're still making money, yes. You're still gaining wealth, yes, but you're thinking kingdom mindset. That's what Jesus gets to in the next paragraph. Seek the kingdom, not your kingdom. But here's the most serious reason why greed is dangerous. Greed destroys. If you want an even stronger word, greed damns. That's what we see in verses 20 and 21. So greed is serious. Yes, it divides. But if that's where we stop our evaluation, uh, we're missing out the fact that it deceives and it distorts. But we now come to the climax of the story... This is sort of the interruption. This is sort of the surprise term. When you're reading stories, there's, all, you know, when you're, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end, but there's a conflict. There's a surprising plot twist. Here's the surprising plot twist. Everything's growing great for this man. He's got an awesome plan. It's like really smart. Economically, store my stuff. I can sell it more for future years when there's not a glut in the, in the grain market. But God, verse 20, he thought about everything but God. And God comes in and says to him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall these things be which thou hast provided? How does greed destroy? It destroys the soul. The guy had a seemingly good plan. Everything was going nicely. But then God intrudes on his plan. This man made his calculations. He put all the information into the Excel spreadsheet. There was no God factor Now, this is the second time Jesus has called someone a fool. Back just in chapter 11, he said to the Pharisees, Ye fools, did not he that made that which is without make that which is within also? Now, Jesus says that a person who lives only with reference to themselves is a fool. Now, what does he mean? He doesn't mean that the guy is mentally weak. He's obviously very shrewd. You don't become a wealthy person by being an idiot. What he does mean is that he's a fool in terms of Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You know what a fool is? A fool is someone who lives life without reference to God. There might be the smartest people that you look at in the world, but man, they're super smart, but they don't think about God, they are fools. Those who may be extremely intelligent and have PhDs, but are like, yeah, God didn't make the universe, the universe made it itself. They're fools in that sense, in that moral evaluation To be a fool is to lack divine awareness. To be a fool, you simply live life as if this is all there is. To be a fool, you simply live for the here and now. Now, in verse 19, the man had made plans for many years to come, presuming on the future. God says to him, this very night your soul is required. He was thinking decades, and God's like, you're not even guaranteed tomorrow. God says, thy soul is required. You are going to die tonight to the man in this story. Many years to come versus that very night. Jesus makes a similar point down in verse 28. If God so clothed the grass, which today is in the field, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, or ye have little faith? Our lives are so brief. Our lives are like the vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Our lives are like smoke that ascends and then dissipates. Life is brief. Life is fragile. And God is the one who holds our every breath in his hands. We're not in control. We may think, oh yeah, I'll think about God later on in my life. We're not guaranteed later on. Our lives hang, as it were, by a slender thread over a grand canyon of eternity. We're just a single single heartbeat away from exiting this life and then standing before the creator of the universe. And at that point, there's no do-overs, there's no second chances. But it is appointed unto man once to die. Then after this, the judgment. And one day, the dead will stand before God, small and great and give an account. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life is cast into the lake of fire. This is what we are dealing with. We are dealing with matters of infinite seriousness. And listen, some of you will go through life saying, yeah, 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 I know that, but I'm just focused on my job. I'm not going to come to church today because I'm just going to go take in another shift. I'm not going to read the Bible because I'm just focused on doing these things. And you're going to go through life without thinking about God in any meaningful way because you're simply focused on stuff. And one day your soul will be required of you. This man had promised to his soul years and years of ease and pleasure. Yet God comes and says, I'm going to demand your soul of you. That word shall be required is the idea of calling up a debt. All right, the debt collection agency is called and there's no more deadlines. Pay is going to be garnished. This is going to be paid off. God is going to require back the soul because the soul belonged to him all along. Our life never was ours, it was always God's. Would to God that we would regularly remember our mortality. Psalm 90 Lord, teach us to number our days. Psalm 39 says, you know, all of our life is but vanity. You see, life is short, but eternity is infinite. And living for the here and now is foolishness. It is insanity. Now, Jesus asks a question. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? This guy had stashed up all this stuff. Who's going to get this? You haven't built a family. There's no one to inherit this. You haven't invested in the community around you. He's been living for you. This guy's like Ebenezer Scrooge, right? He just shuts everybody out. Here's the idea. The stuff that this man has is going to be completely lost. You see, greed destroys the soul eternally. Those who die with unrepentant greed will go to hell. Unrepentant greed will damn the soul to eternal torment. Sin that is not dealt with, sin that is not repented of, sin that is not paid for by Christ... Will be paid for in the fires of hell, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. But it not only does greed destroy the soul, it destroys wealth. I'm investing in all this stuff, and then you die, and it's no good to you. His full granaries, his life savings could do nothing for his soul. All the goods this man had stored up for himself would be of no use when the debt was called up. It'd be like knowing, hey, I've got to pay back my debts in dollars and cents, and I've invested in monopoly money. All right, that was a smart move. Or you invested in the ruble. Man, that, that would, it's not going to do any good for you. His goods would be no good. He'd invested in currency that could not be exchanged. Invested in monopoly money, and its use ended when the game concluded. In the end, he'd forfeit his soul. He'd forfeit his wealth. You see, because no amount of money can prevent death. Oh, you can pay for some really good treatment in the hospital maybe get another year or two out of it. But it can't prevent death. No amount of money can pay for sin. No amount of money can avert God's wrath. No amount of money can bribe the judge of all the earth. Judgment day is going to come, and the dead will stand before God, small and great. Donald Trump, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates will be in exactly the same boat as people whose names we've never heard of. Financial prowess will mean nothing. The only deliverance on Judgment Day is not accumulating wealth. The only deliverance on Judgment Day is not by being religious. It's not by being a good person. It is Christ and Christ alone. Thou must save and thou alone. In my hand no price I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. All of us are greedy sinners. There's greed in all of our hearts. And greed will destroy. The only way that we can be delivered from greed is to be delivered by Christ, is for Christ to take the punishment of our greed on himself and pay the penalty. Only then can greedy sinners like you and me be forgiven. It's not something we can do. It's not, I'm going to try really hard to not be a greedy person and then I'll make my way to heaven. No. It's recognizing I am a greedy person. And I'm much more, I'm much worse. I'm a sinner who has violated God's law and Jesus died for sinners like me. He came to seek and to save that which was what? Lost. Christ Jesus came into the world to save who? Sinners of whom I am chief. The only way to be delivered on judgment day is not to accumulate your wealth, but is to run to Christ. To run to Christ. So how do we deal with this danger? We've got to be born again. See, greed is not just something we do. It's something that's rooted very deeply in our desires. You ever try to change the things you desire? I'm going to quit Liking potato chips. It's like, oh, I still like them. It's just, we do not have the capacity to change our own hearts. We've got to get a new heart, and that's called the new birth. Unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom. Those who have greedy and wicked hearts will not enter the kingdom. We've got to get new hearts, we've got to have a new birth. Got to put our trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. And if you're here today and there's never been that kind of radical change in your heart, I would urge you, I would beg you today, turn to Christ. Quit trusting yourself. Quit hoping that Judgment Day God will just overlook your sin and just kind of let you in out of just being nice. And trust Jesus and him alone. How do we deal with greed? We have to be born again. We also need to learn to worship God. Colossians 3.5 that Ryan talked about last Sunday Paul says covetousness is idolatry. It is a form of false worship. Which tells me this, that the way to deal with covetousness, get this, is to worship God rather than stuff. If I'm covetous, it's because I'm really worshiping stuff rather than God. So I drive out covetousness with worshiping God by being so delighted and so overwhelmed with the glory and the goodness and the majesty of God that I don't need stuff to make me happy. When God is my joy, when God is my delight, when God is my satisfaction, when He is all I need, when I am complete in Christ, when I can say, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine, stuff will have no hold on my heart. Deuteronomy 8, verse 10 gave us the opposite of Deuteronomy 6 that we looked at earlier. It says, When you get to that land, make sure that you thank God. One of the ways we regularly worship God is by thanking Him for all that He gives. He's going to bless us, He's going to give us good things. But we break the captivity to greed through gratitude. Here's also how we deal with this. We deal with greed. We deal with covetousness with a new birth. We deal with covetousness. We deal with greed by developing a heart of worship. We deal with greed by learning contentment. Hebrews 13 says, Let your lifestyle, your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. So, greed says, I'll be happy when I have what I want. I want stuff, I don't have it. When I get it, then I'll be happy. Contentment says, I'm going to want what I have. God's given it to me, and so I'm going to say, I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to thank God for it. I'm going to recognize his kindness in giving me what I have. And if he's chosen to give me this, this is what he knows I need. And if he's not given it to me, it's because he knows better than I know. And finally, you give to others. Say, man, I, I do have a greedy heart. I'm a Christian. I know I'm born again, but greed still lurks. We still have this fallen flesh that we deal with. Drive out greed with generosity. Where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. I want to conclude with this word from the Old Testament, the Old Testament proverb, proverb uh, prophet Habakkuk. He's looking to a day when judgment's going to fall on Judah. He's wrestling with us, and he comes to this conclusion at the end of his book. He says, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, in other words, even though I'm not going to have any wealth or anything good, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olives shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat, and the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God will be my strength, and he will make my feet like hind's feet, and he shall make me to walk upon mine high places. What if we were fixated on God like that rather than on money? Father, drive out greed from our hearts, from our souls. Drive it out.